Hello and greetings. Thank you for spending some time with us and the gift of that time as we continue to explore what God has made known in Scripture. I'm Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're Disciples Making Disciples in Los Angeles. If we can be of any service to you, if we can be of any assistance, we'd love to hear from you. Please reach out to us where you found us. Uh, please uh, visit us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org or on our social media at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And today, I'd like to consider... Uh, what good deed must we do for us to be saved? And who, then, can be saved? And we're asking these questions based upon a story that we find in three of the Gospels, in Matthew 19, 16-30, Mark 10, 17-31, and Luke 18, 18-30. Uh, we're going to read the version in Matthew's Gospel. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, all three versions of this story take place around the same time, and so they're all looking at the same event. Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover and to suffer, to die, and to rise from the dead. As we see in verse 1 of chapter 19, he has already entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So he is in the area that is still part of the Roman province of Judea that is east of the Jordan River. And he's not yet crossed the Jordan at Jericho. He's going to do this according to Mark 10 and verse 46, uh, a little bit after this. Um, and a man comes up to Jesus, as we see here. He's a young man here in Matthew. And in Luke 18, he's called a ruler. And we see that he has great wealth. And so this is why he gets called the rich young ruler. He's possibly a ruler from a Sanhedrin like one of the, the ones who will eventually judge Jesus, uh, or maybe in a synagogue. We're not told what kind of ruler he is. And he wants to know, what good thing can he do to obtain eternal life? This is very similar to the question the lawyer has in Luke 10 and verse 25, but it seems that there's more sincerity here, that the rich young ruler really wants to know. And he seems like a decent guy who wants to learn something from Jesus. Maybe he's looking for some kind of confirmation or affirmation that he is in a good place, that he is on the way to life. Now, uh, Jesus kind of chases at this, like, good, uh, at this idea of being asked what is good in, in, 
Another one of the aversions, it's only God is good. Uh, trying to, again, put the onus on who on, on God as being great and good. Uh, and says you need to keep the commandments. And this is exactly what Jesus returned to in Luke 10.26 with the lawyer as well. What are the commandments? You know, to love uh, the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, but here he goes through the commandments that we see in the Ten Commandments. Uh, the ones here particularly that are, are listed are the ones about loving your neighbor. To not murder, to not commit adultery, to not steal, to not bear false witness, honor your father and na- mother, and then of course you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Nothing really extraordinary here. I mean, this is standard stuff that you would expect, right? And then the young man asks, Okay, well, I've kept all these things up from my youth. What do I still lack? And it's really an extraordinary statement, right? I have kept the law. Um, is he delusional or is he really holy? Jesus doesn't dispute the statement. He doesn't affirm it either. And we are told that Jesus loves him. I mean, we're told this is not a situation where Jesus is ambivalent toward him or hostile toward him. No, Jesus loves him. Jesus wants the best for this man. He would love for this man to be his disciple. And so Jesus gives him this call. If you want to be perfect, sell all that you have and go and give to the poor and come follow me. It's really an extraordinary call after such an extraordinary statement, right? And it kind of probably plays off one another. And of course, the big question when we see this, is Jesus really laying down here a command for everyone at all time? And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, so we're just going to hold that conversation for later. Um, we will talk about it, but let's see what happens. So he, he gives this call, this charge, a very, very powerful one and a very big ask. And the young man goes away sorrowful because he has a lot of possessions. Uh, so Jesus has identified his weakness, the, the one thing that he wasn't really willing to part with the money, or perhaps the security the money gave him in order to follow Jesus. So, in a very real way, we could say that he chose mammon over God. You know, when Jesus in Matthew 6, 24 said, you cannot serve both God and mammon, uh, we see this displayed here in a very powerful scene, that when it came time to, will you give this stuff up to obtain what you say you're looking for, uh, we see where his confidence really was. And so because of this, he, he turns to his disciples and he tells them that only with difficulty will a rich person enter into the kingdom. That uh, This very famous statement that it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now there are a lot who want to you know, take that statement and try to reduce the hyperbole and say that there was somewhere uh, some kind of small, narrow thing that uh, in a... In a um, in a path, the eye of a needle. We have no evidence for that. There's no reason to suggest that there was some kind of physical feature known as the eye of the needle. That, in fact, he means the eye of a needle that would be used for sewing. And, of course, a camel is a very large animal. And it's a very intentional hyperbole. It's a ridiculous statement. It's a funny scene. It could never happen. Um, but why does he say this? Well, he's identified uh, wealth and as a really strong temptation to resist the purposes of God because it's very easy to find security in that wealth and to put your trust and confidence that that wealth is going to preserve you and to provide you what you need and not only that by having that wealth you now see other people as threats to that wealth because they might want to take that wealth or use that wealth to their advantage and therefore you kind of alienate yourself from your fellow man and because you have this wealth, you feel that you are doing well, that you are doing better. Um, and especially at this time, so you read the Proverbs, you read a lot of the uh, ideology of the era, you believe God has blessed you because 
everybody believes the gods are at work in everything. So if you have wealth, it means that you are blessed by God or the gods with that wealth, and therefore it is easy to believe and accept one's own righteousness and to believe oneself healthy and not in need of God or anything that God would provide in Matthew 9:10-13. And because of that, the disciples are just astonished. Well, who then can be saved? And it might seem like a strange question at that point to us, but if it does, it's because that there are certain, you know, we talk about how the world resists the message of the gospel, and it's certainly true, but there are some ways in which the gospel has absolutely shifted certain mentalities and ideas. And this is a big one, because today we understand that somebody getting wealth doesn't automatically mean that God has blessed them or that they've done it in a good way. Uh, that it could come as the fruit of exploitation and oppression. And that there's still this understanding that God kind of identifies with those who are among the poor, uh, except for those uh, false gospels like the prosperity gospel that wants to intentionally distort these things and go back to the previous consensus. And so in this time period, if you were poor, it was seen as a sign that God had not favored or blessed you. And if you were wealthy, it was a sign that God had blessed you and favored you. And so here Jesus is saying that those who are wealthy are not going to make it. So to the disciples, if those who are wealthy, those who already have God's blessings aren't going to make it, how can anybody be saved? And uh, Jesus then responds with a statement that would not have maybe provided a whole lot of solace at the point. Uh, it is impossible with man. Yeah. Uh, on the, in the realm of men, this would be impossible. Yeah, you cannot have, anyone can be saved. Nope, nobody can be saved in the realm of men. But with God, all things are possible. So this is where Jesus kind of turns it around on um, what's really going on here. That the whole thing is a critique of the very mentality being expressed by that young man. What good deed must I do? What can I do? How can I get salvation? Um, and there's a lot of ways in which we, we want to commend this. But notice that everything that was spoken of so far was entirely human-oriented. Uh, do the commandments. Which ones? Do, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this. Well, I've done all of that. What do I need to do? Well, you need to sell everything that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. If he were to do that, he would be fully depending upon God. Uh, he's putting his trust in confidence that God is going to provide for him because uh, he no longer has. Uh, no longer would he be living according to the ways of man. He'd be living according to the ways of God. But he turns away sorrowfully because that's not the direction he wants to go. And as long as you are having that mentality in the world that you're, these things are what I need to do to be saved, you're not going to be able to be saved. Because with mankind, salvation is impossible. We can't save ourselves out of this uh, situation. We cannot extricate ourselves out of our sin problem. Uh, we cannot just by works of the law f obtain salvation. Because uh, by works of the law, we are all condemned as transgressors, as Paul makes clear in Romans. It's only God who can accomplish salvation. And it's only God who's able to uh, help us overcome the challenges we have that we can actually uh, be found honorable and glorified in his sight. And so the disciples then say, okay, Peter's like, well, we've left everything to follow you. What are we going to get, right? And Jesus just says, you'll receive, uh, the, when the Son of Man receives, sits on his throne, you're going to uh, sit on the 12 thrones, judging 12 tribes of Israel, and that everyone who's left these things, uh, houses or family or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. That there's going to be a, 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 an immense reward in the kingdom of God, which the people would have probably seen in a very materialistic way, but of course Jesus means it in a much more spiritual way. 
And of course, that, that final statement is really something else that really kind of illuminates the whole thing. Many who are first will be last and the last first. So all of these people, the rich young ruler is first. He's now going to be last. Those who are last, the poor, the, the, the marginalized, those who trusted in God when they had nothing, they had nothing else and, and uh, in Jesus they saw hope, they will uh, be first. Like the disciples in front of them. Which, you know, if you're looking at who would be honored in society, the rich young ruler, much more than the ragtag bunch of people following Jesus. And yet in the kingdom, it's now going to be the opposite. And so in this way, Jesus has instructed the rich young ruler and his disciples. And so we come to our questions, right? What good deed must we do to have eternal life? And who then can be saved? And a lot of this kind of gravitates uh, around the anxiety of this passage. It gravitates around, you know, go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. And so is that something we need to do, right? And a lot of people will, will go to this and say, look, this is what Jesus commands. See, Jesus commanded this here. And Jesus absolutely commands it of the rich young ruler. He is telling this man, based on his query, what he needs to do. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, uh, Timothy, Paul tells Timothy regarding the, some of the things that should be done uh, by those who have wealth in this present world. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future they may take hold of that which is truly life. Notice in all of that, they are expected to be generous, they are expecting to give to to others in need, uh, but Paul does not say, charge those in the present world to sell all that they have and give to the poor. That is not the command that Paul gives to Timothy. They are expected to be generous. So we shouldn't say, well, uh, Paul didn't also say to Timothy, let those who are rich in the present world hoard up their wealth and sit on it. That wasn't what he said either. So what Jesus tells the rich young ruler was never understood as an absolute command to everyone. But what it does mean is that if we are called upon, we should be willing to do that. That's what the early disciples did after all in Acts 2 and Acts 4. We see that uh, people sold lands and gave up what they had, so they had all things in common. Uh, Barnabas especially is, is called out as an example of this in Acts chapter 4. And we need to make sure nobody's deceived about this. Jesus is absolutely warning us about the dangers that attend to wealth. And how when we have wealth, and again, wealth is a relative term. We all can look at our lives and see people who are far wealthier than we are. Uh, to use a Los Angeles metaphor for this, there are always people a little bit higher up on the hill who have a little bit more money, who have more resources. And so you can always see yourself as poor by comparison. But Jesus doesn't say here you know, that the wealthy are just uh, the super rich. Uh, we all if you're listening to this message, are probably among the wealthy compared to everybody else in the world today, let alone according to standards of the past. We all have a lot more wealth, and we are the wealthy far more than we care to admit when we have these kind of conversations. Are there those who are even wealthier? Oh, absolutely they are, and these commands are just as relevant to them, but we cannot use that as a way of trying to deflect from our own responsibility before God and toward our fellow man with what God has given us. 
because it's so easy with the wealth that we have, even if there's others with more wealth, to justify and rationalize how we are separating ourselves off from our fellow man uh, that we would not meet his needs. Uh, we will judge them, well, it, they're going to use it on drugs and alcohol, they're going to do all kinds of bad things with it, or they should just go get a job, I worked hard for what I have, why should I give to him? Um, not remembering all this, but by the grace of God, there we go, and that we would be like them if we dealt with the situations that they often dealt with. And this is a theme that we see in the apostles as well. So in 1 Timothy 6, 3-11, earlier in this passage, Paul has uh, warned Timothy about the fact that those who wish to be rich in this present world um, are... Uh, piercing themselves with many pangs, it's the root of all kinds of evil, and it leads people into ruin and destruction. And that the false teachers think that godliness is a means of gain, and that's why they ply their trade. Again, witness all those prosperity preachers in the prosperity gospel. Uh, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, Hebrews I said, Be content with what you have. Uh, do not uh, fall to the love of money, because uh, uh, do we trust that God is who he says he is, that he will provide for us uh, what can man do to us. And in 1 John 3, 16 and 8 through 18, the whole idea that we are to lay down our lives for our friends is that we love one another by having, the, if we have the world's goods, that we don't close ourselves off to our fellow brother, but we actually provide for his needs. So if it's not supposed to be this absolute prohibition why, or, or commendation, why does Jesus ask the rich young ruler to sell all he has and gives to the poor? And it goes to the heart of the one thing, which is interesting, right? Because what has he asked? He has asked Jesus, what one thing, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he's really asking, what's that one thing? And what in the end Jesus does is ask him about the one thing. So Jesus, he asked Jesus, what one thing do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus' really response says, what are you going to do about that one thing you're not willing to give up? That's what's going on here. What are you going to do about that one thing you're not giving up? Because we've seen earlier, we've got this weird thing where he says he's done all the commandments, right? And Jesus never challenges him on that. You would imagine that Jesus be able to, to figure out times where maybe he didn't love his neighbor as himself. Um, the whole point of Romans 3 and verse 20 is that none of us have really kept the law fully. That's the whole problem. Uh, we shouldn't assume that Jesus thinks he's actually done the full law. Uh, but Jesus doesn't want to get lost in the weeds. He wants to deal with the issue, and the issue is the one thing. The one thing dear to this rich young ruler was his wealth. And so it was not going to do any good to argue whether he kept the law at every point or not. The test was, was he going to give up his money for God? Uh, and he was not willing to do so. Uh, we see another example of that one thing in Genesis 22, right? Where with Abraham, Abraham all kinds of wealth, and he knows it came from God, easily give it up. But he has this son of his old age, Isaac. And so God says, really, to Abraham, will you give up that one thing for me? Will you give up your son for me? And Abraham proves willing to do that. He did not hold him back from sacrifice. And because of that, Abraham was richly blessed. And the reason why this is so important is because we will go and experience the exact same challenge as the rich young ruler at some point in our lives. At some point in our lives, Jesus is going to ask us, are you willing to give up that one thing? The issue is, what is that one thing? That one thing is going to be, in our lives, the one thing that we want to hold on most to, the one thing we want to hold on the closest to. It might be like the rich young ruler, our wealth or our possessions. 
But it might be like Abraham, our relationship with a child or a spouse or a parent or someone else. Whatever it is, it's very dear to us. We hold on to that very tightly. And so when Jesus comes to ask us that, are you willing to give up that one thing for me? How are we going to answer? Because that's where our faith is really being put to the test. Do we really love God and Jesus above all else? Or would we also walk away sorrowful like the rich young ruler because we weren't willing to give up that one thing for Jesus? And that, of course, leads to our question. Well, who then can be saved? We have a young man. He's zealous for God. He is a good person, right? And he's seeking to know what he needs to do to obtain eternal life. I mean, this guy is the kind of guy that every preacher wants to talk to, right? He is the kind of guy you want to see in your congregation. This is a great guy. And yet, the way of eternal life is closed off to him. And so who can be saved if not a man like him? And that's, again, going back to the challenge of the question. What good deed could he do to obtain eternal life? Because really, what's the real answer to that? Nothing. There is absolutely nothing that you can do to obtain eternal life. Because we have sinned. We have fallen short of God's glory, and we cannot be saved through our own righteousness. That's the message of Romans chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2, and Titus chapter 3. And that's what Jesus is hinting at here. It's impossible with man, because man can do nothing to be saved. However, all things are possible with God, and salvation is possible with God. Because God was accomplishing in Jesus the work that led to salvation, that allowed us to be forgiven of our sins, to have the cleansing, to have that standing before God, as expressed in Titus 3, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 4, and many other passages. And that is why it is only God who is good. He is the only one who can save. And we need to insist on this and to not qualify it. We often want to qualify it because we talk about the need to follow Jesus and to do what he says. And this is not to deny the fact that we need to follow Jesus and do what he says. It's not suggesting that we're going to be saved uh, doing absolutely nothing. But we need to understand that we can't do anything to earn salvation. That's the mentality that we need to get away from that is very much present here and which Jesus is rightly resisting. So who will be saved? Jesus does tell us who will be saved. Those who have forsaken other relationships when called upon to, those who uh, they, they uh, will obtain eternal life in Jesus. They're not following Jesus to earn their salvation. They follow Jesus because Jesus has delivered them from sin and death and has called them to obedient faith. And this is going to mean that a lot of those who have been exalted in the world have humbled themselves. And they're expecting, in their humility, to be exalted, as in Matthew 23:12, and here in Matthew 19 and verse 30, that they will be first, even though they were last, and those who were last uh, will be made first. And this is the demand of faith, the willingness to entrust ourselves to God in all things, to give up whatever is demanded that we might glorify and honor him. That's what the disciples did. They were willing to forsake everything to follow Jesus, and they obtained that reward, and they are now the model for us to do the same. So what does this mean? It means that no matter how good we think we are, how honest we think our motives are when we stand before Jesus, what really matters is our commitment to Jesus. If we are wealthy, are we willing to part with our wealth to follow Jesus? If our family or friends are everything to us, are we willing to part from them to follow Jesus? Will we bear the cross, the humiliation and the shame in order to obtain eternal life? 
Or will the comforts of the life that we've built up for ourselves hinder us from following Jesus? Whether those comforts are material, whether those comforts are relational, or so on and so forth. Will we prove willing to renounce everything we have to follow Jesus? Will we give them over to Jesus? Now, I want to be very clear about this. This doesn't mean that we actually depart from all of these people. We need to allow the relationship we have with these people to be transformed by our commitment to Jesus. It does not mean that we depart with all of our material wealth. But it absolutely means that our posture about our wealth and the way we exercise and use that wealth is now subjected to God's purposes in Jesus. The question is, have we made Jesus the Lord of our lives and that we're submitting all, subjecting all things to him and recognizing we cannot be saved by our own efforts but only through what God has accomplished in Jesus? Or are we still trying to earn our salvation and to check a bunch of boxes and to have something by which we can stand before God uh, in our delusions uh, and be, have exposed to us the fact that our confidence really isn't in God, it's in us and our righteousness and in our stuff. That's the challenge that we're opposed here. The same one challenge that was given to the rich young ruler. And so that's the decision that we need to make. And we encourage everyone to be willing to renounce everything and to put their trust fully in God through what he's accomplished through Jesus and to obtain eternal life in him. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all the blessings you've given us of life, for your love and care and provision that you have uh, proven willing to give us the opportunity to be saved in Jesus and displayed covenant loyalty toward us in him. We're thankful for Jesus and all that he suffered and for his example and for what we can learn in him and the hope we have of life and the resurrection and the participation that we share in the kingdom. We're thankful for the spirit through which you strengthen and sanctify us and the word by which we may come to know you. We're thankful for one another and all the material blessings of this creation that you've given us. We're mindful of those who are ill. We pray that you would heal them. We pray for those who are in distress and in pain that you would comfort and heal them. We pray for those who are um, in despair, and we pray for those who are in need, that you would provide for them. We pray that your justice and righteousness would flow in our land. We pray that in all things you would be glorified and honored. At this time, Father, we, we pray that we would understand and have the faith to trust in you above all things, and that we submit everything that we have in our lives to you. And we pray, Father, that when confronted with that one thing, that we are willing to renounce that one thing, to subject our love and care for that one thing to you and your purposes, uh, that you would be glorified and honored and that our faith would truly be in you. We pray, Father, that we recognize that all the blessings that we have come from you and we are to use them in ways that glorify and honor you, that we are to, in our relationships, uh, embody Jesus toward one another, that in our material goods we are to provide for those in need through what you have given us, that the blessings that we have may be shared by others. Uh, please give us the strength, the confidence, the boldness, and the, in the, in the heart of faith to do these things, that you would be glorified and honored. And we look forward to sharing in the resurrection of life with Jesus. And we earnestly look forward to his return. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're again so glad that you've joined us. Thank you. If you have any questions or comments, uh, please let us know. We'd love to know what you think about uh, what good deed we must do in order to be saved and uh, who can be saved. And we'd love to uh, hear any other questions you might have and your answers. Please let us know here in the comments. Subscribe to us here where you found us. Uh, please reach out to us if you'd like at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We'd love to be able to see you at some point. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.